come clear. Isn't that right, George? <laughs> yeah, no pressure. So, Hannah, thank you very much. Okay, so Revelation chapter 2, and we're starting at verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One second, sorry about this. The technology never works. Good job. Let's pray as we start. Lord Jesus, would you help me and guide me as I um, speak this morning? And would you give us all ears to hear what you are saying to us in this passage? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, there is a deep tension between how our culture tells us to live and how God tells us to live in the Bible. Our culture tells us to prioritise our own pleasure and happiness and comfort Jesus tells us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Our culture tells us that our bodies don't really matter. It doesn't matter what we do with them. It doesn't matter who we do it with. It doesn't even matter if we feel we're in the right body. 
the Bible tells us that it really does matter what we do with our bodies. And if we're Christians, that they are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our culture tells us it doesn't matter what you believe. Everyone's on their own journey in life. So what's true for you doesn't have to be true for me. Jesus tells us that only those who believe in him will have eternal life. And that those who don't believe him face judgment and eternal damnation. Well, how then, if we're Christians here this morning, do we navigate this tension? How can we live in this culture and at the same time live as God wants us to? Well, we're not alone in having to think about these questions. Christianity has always been countercultural. And while the ways these issues manifest themselves look different today, the church in Thyatira, who um, this letter from Jesus is written to 2,000 years ago, um, were having to deal with exactly the same sorts of questions. So if we had the next slide. Here are the ruins of Thyatira today. Thyatira was a city in the Roman Empire, in modern-day Turkey, and it was a hub for skilled craftspeople, metal workers, weavers, and carpenters, that sort of thing. And pretty much whatever job you did in Thyatira, if you wanted any business at all, you had to be a member of a guild, a sort of members club for people of the same trade as you. And these guilds gave you credibility as a craftsperson, and they'd be where you'd get your clients, make important connections, and they were really the social hub of the city. So it was almost impossible not to be a member of one of these guilds. But the problem was, each one of these guilds had a patron god, one of the Greek gods who they believed protected them and looked over the work and activities of the guild. And the guilds would expect their members to give offerings to these gods. And they'd hold feasts and festivals in celebration of these gods, where everyone would drink a lot and sleep around, and they'd expect their members to be in attendance. Well, how would the Christians in Thyatira navigate that tension? How would they live in that culture and at the same time live as God wanted them to? Well, in this passage, Jesus gives three pictures from the Old Testament to help the Thyatiran church and to help us today to live for him and follow him while living in the midst of a non-Christian culture. Three pictures then. The man in the fire, the woman at the window, and the son on the throne. So if we have the next slide, the first picture, the man in the fire. Jesus starts his letter to this church, just as he started the other letters we've been looking at, with an awe-inspiring image of himself. So please do get your Bibles back open again if you've closed them, and look down at verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. While we know that Jesus is the Son of God, this is in fact the only time in the book of Revelation that he's called that. And this picture of Jesus, the Son of God, with eyes like blazing fire and feet like the shiniest metal you've ever seen, points us back into the Old Testament to another time when God's people lived in the midst of a culture that who didn't worship God and expected them to worship other gods. 
When God's people were in exile in Babylonia 600 years before Revelation, we learn in the Old Testament book of Daniel that the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar forced everyone to bow down to a golden image of one of his gods that he'd set up. And he said that whoever didn't bow down to the image, he would throw into a blazing fire. But three men, three of God's people, refused to bow down and worship this image. And so they were dragged before the king who gave them a second chance, but they said, no, we're not bowing down to any other god but our own. And so they get thrown into the fire. And then if we have the next slide, we read this. Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Look, he says, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And the three men are brought out of the fire, unharmed. These three men were thrown into a fire for defiantly refusing to compromise their faith in God. And who was there with them, protecting them? One like a son of the gods. So how does this picture of Jesus in Revelation encourage us and the Thyatiran church to follow him? Well, just like the men thrown in the fire, we can be incredibly bold It would have been easy for those men to think, well, I may as well bow down to this image. I know it's not really a god. It's not worth risking my life over. But instead, they decided to face down the king of the vast Babylonian empire, prepared to be chucked into a fire. Why? Because they knew who their god was and is, the almighty god who can save them from fire. And even if he doesn't, we'll bring them through death. So they didn't fear that human king. And they know their God is with them. With them as they stand alone in a crowd of people bowing down to a false god. With them as they stand up to the king. And with them in the fire as they face what would seem to be certain death. And so the Thyatiran church could be bold, refusing to compromise on their faith. Even if it meant that they would be kicked out of their guild and lose business, they could say, well, actually, I'm not going to get involved in those pagan rituals. And for us today, we don't need to fear what our teachers or peers or colleagues or bosses or friends or even family members will do to us for standing firm on the gospel and on biblical teaching. We can say to them, look, I love you, but I'm afraid I can't go to that pride parade with you next week. Or I'm a Christian, I'm afraid I can't follow this new company policy. Or if we're asked about a particular big topic, we can say, well, I know it's uncomfortable to hear, but actually the Bible teaches this and that's what I believe. How can we do this? The Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, is with you. And verse 19 of our passage in Revelation. He knows your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So keep going. He's with you. Well, if the first Old Testament image is one of encouragement, the next one in our passage is a stark warning. Look down at verse 20. 
Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads servants, uh, my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Let's have the next slide, please. Thank you. While some of the Thyatiran church were persevering under the immense strain of living in their culture, they had allowed someone into their church um, who was teaching things that were leading people away from the truth of the gospel. And this woman's teaching, we're told, had misled Jesus' servants, that is, Christians, his followers, into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. We don't know exactly what was being taught, but it could have gone something like this. Well, fire tyrants, I know you've been told that you shouldn't take part in your guild's pagan rituals, but actually, it's okay. Don't listen to those old-fashioned puritanical teachers in your church, and certainly not that guy Paul in the Bible. They're just out to ruin your fun. If you refuse to take part, then you could lose your job, and any popularity or status you have will be gone in an instant. And that's not what God wants for you. He wants what's best for you. And actually, sin is an old-fashioned concept. God is love. He doesn't judge you for being you. So go and get involved in those rituals. God created pleasure. So it's good to get let loose and enjoy yourself. And if he's really so loving, then why would he care if you're giving offerings to other gods? And this sort of teaching is everywhere today. Some preachers, not in our church, but some preachers will tell you that because of the forgiveness we have in Jesus, we're now free to do whatever we want. Jesus set us free from rules and laws, so go out and do whatever your body tells you you want to do. Others say, well, the Bible was written a very long time ago, when culture and morality were very different to now. Now that we've progressed, it's time for the church to move with the times. And that's something we're seeing some in the Church of England trying to do now by trying to redefine the very clear biblical teaching on marriage. In an age in which it is increasingly uncomfortable to publicly say you're a Christian and that you hold to the teachings of the Bible, these false teachings are very attractive. They promise us an easy life and tell us that we don't have to stand out for, or, or, or be different for being a Christian. Well, this second Old Testament picture Jesus gives reveals such teachings for what they really are. In verse 20, Jesus calls the false teacher in their church Jezebel. Now, this is unlikely to be the actual name of this woman, but is instead pointing us back into the Old Testament to the the Jezebel of one and two kings, the evil wife of the idolatrous Israelite king, Ahab. Jezebel, we learn in 1 Kings, was a worshipper of the false god, Baal. And she had convinced her husband, Ahab, uh, and their children, and many of the Israelites, to worship Baal as well. She also killed God's prophets and tried to have Elijah, the chief of God's prophets, killed. So God had promised that she would die a gruesome and humiliating death for her defiance against him and her evil in enticing the people of Israel to worship Baal. And that's what happens. In 2 Kings 9, we read that the new king of Israel, a man called Jehu, 
comes out and stands outside Jezebel's house. And Jezebel stands and looks down at him. This isn't Jezebel, but from the upper story of her house through a window. And at Jehu's order, three of her servants throw her out of the window. She smashes into the ground. We're told some of her blood spatters against the wall of the house. There are some horses there that trample on her body. And when they go to bury her later that day, all they find is her skull, her hands, and her feet. Well, on the surface of it, the teaching of this woman in the Thyatiran church, and that of many we hear today, doesn't seem like a big deal. All she's advocating for, surely, is a slight compromise. Worship God and live as a normal functioning member of your culture. But Jesus is saying, no. This teaching is as bad as Baal worship. In reality, it's not a compromise any more that worshipping Baal and God is a compromise. Either we fear and worship God and trust that his ways are best, or we fear people and worship acceptance or pleasure or money, trusting that the world's ways are best. We can't do both. In reality, this teaching is designed to draw us, draw us away from the narrow road that leads to life and onto the wide road that leads to destruction. And just as God punished Jezebel and her followers, so too will he punish all those who abandon the truth of the gospel for this teaching. Look at verses 21 to 23. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, that is, those people who have gone along with what she's teaching. I will strike her children, that is, her followers, dead. He will strike them dead, cut off from God, facing judgment. Well, maybe this all sounds a bit harsh to you. Maybe this doesn't fit with the picture of Jesus that you have. But in fact, Jesus speaks of hell and judgment more than anyone else in the Bible. In Mark 9, for example, speaking of people like this woman in the passage who might lead his people astray, Jesus says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. Hell is real. And it's not something to play around with. If you realise you've been drawn in by these sorts of false teachings, then cut them out of your life. If there's a particular YouTube or TV channel or radio show or book that's claiming to be Christian and telling you these sorts of things, then stop going to them. 
And while this, I don't think, is happen- an, issue in, in, an issue in our church, but it certainly was in Thyatira, if there is anyone in the church in a teaching position who holds these sorts of views, then don't let them. Stop tolerating them. Verse 20. Of course, while hell is real, Jesus has offered us a way out. Look back at verse 22. Jesus says he will strike them dead unless they repent of their ways. If God is impressing on you that this applies to you, then repent. Turn back to the Son of God with eyes like blazing fire, who searches hearts and minds, who will repay each of you according to your deeds. And he will forgive you and give you the strength you need to persevere and stand firm. Well, the first Old Testament picture gave us an encouragement. The second gave us a warning. And the third gives us an incredible promise. If we have the next slide, please. Look down at verse 24 of our passage. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. There were some in the church who hadn't been convinced by the teaching of this woman. Uh, And this teaching, Jesus calls for what it really is, satanic. And to those people, Jesus doesn't require them to do anything more than just keep going. Keep going, trusting in him with their deeds, their love, their faith, their service and perseverance from verse 19. And then he gives them, and us too, this astounding promise. Look down at verse 26. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery just as I have received authority from my Father. Now, your Bible might have a little letter B after that quoted bit. And if you look down to the bottom of the page, you'll see that Jesus is quoting Psalm 2 here, which is where we find our final Old Testament picture, the Son on the throne. So if you've got your Bibles with you, why don't you keep one finger in Revelation and turn back quickly to Psalm 2. It's on page 543 of the Church Bibles. And Psalm 2 was written many hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth. But in it, we get this incredible picture of Jesus, the Son of God, being enthroned as the King of the universe. If you've got Psalm 2 there, look down at verse 7. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son. He said to me, you are my Son. Today I have become your Father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance the ends of the earth, your possession. And this is the bit that Jesus quotes. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Jesus, the Son of God, God's promised King, has authority over the entire universe and will one day judge the world. And those who have continued in rebellion against him and have not repented, not turned to him for forgiveness, he will, just as was done to Jezebel, dash them to pieces like pottery. But if we go back to Revelation, 
What's so mind-bending about Jesus' promise to us here is that he's applying this psalm to us, to his followers. Jesus says that just as he received authority from his father, so too will he give authority over the nations to those who do his will to the end. That is, until they die or Jesus returns. Just as Psalm 2 is talking about Jesus, who inherits the universe and judges the world, he's saying it also applies to us. If we're following Jesus, trusting in his death and resurrection for our forgiveness, then we are children of God. He says to us, you are my son. You are my daughter. We're his children. And we're heirs of the same inheritance that Jesus is. God's aim isn't to bring us into his new creation as groveling slaves in chains that he orders about but to make us part of his beloved family. And somehow, when Jesus returns, he will include us in his work of judging the nations. It's a mind-bending promise, but it's one that can help us to keep going. While our culture may look like it's drifting ever further away from any sense of biblical morality... While we as Christians may feel increasingly isolated at school or work or even among our family. While standing firm and refusing to compromise for our faith in Jesus may lose us friends or jobs. Or even if we were to lose our life for our faith, we can know that we are already on the side of the victor. We will be standing there with him as the world is judged. So why would we want to live the way the world expects us to live? Our citizenship is in heaven, not here. And then finally, as Jesus closes this letter, he says in verse 28 that he will give us the morning star, which at the end of Revelation, he tells us is himself. He's going to give us himself. Just as the morning star, an ancient term for the planet Venus, rises above the horizon just before sunrise. Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, has risen to pave the way for us, his adopted brothers and sisters, who he will raise to live with him for all eternity. So, brothers and sisters, how do we navigate the tension between our culture and our faith? Well, we can stand firm and be bold, uncompromising on the gospel, holding on to it dearly because we know the Son of God is with us, We repent of any instinct that's drawing us away into these false teachings. And we hold on to the promise that he will one day raise us to everlasting life as his brothers and sisters in his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Lord, you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be with us, that you would give us the strength to be bold in the midst of our ever-increasingly non-Christian culture. Would you help us to repent of any ways in which we are not following you, 
and hold on to the promise that you will raise us to life, to live with you forever. In your name we pray. Amen.